0: The Lord loves to speak through your time. The older you get, it seems like the more he's talking. <laughs> um, I, began, I began to confess this, and I began to confess this not as a faith confession. This was not so, I, This was not me saying, I'm going to make a faith confession. This just arose in my, my spirit a couple of years ago. And um, I really believed it was from the Holy Spirit. So I've grabbed onto it, and I've just... Been saying it. Um, I'm not getting old. It was a statement of my will. Yes. Amen. I'm not getting old. Now I know you're looking at me thinking, poor thing, poor pastors. <laughs> poor pastors just go. But see, that's all right. The Bible says man looks on the outward, but God looks on the heart. In fact, I have absolutely no intention of getting old absolutely no intention, until the very moment when the Lord sees fit to bring me into his actual presence, out of this physical realm, into his presence, until that very moment, I intend to stay young. I intend to be young. I intend to be connected and on fire and stirred up. I'm not going to let the accuser talk through my feelings and through my emotions. And so, you know, no matter how much Satan tries to talk to you and tell you that your prayer, that your fellowship with God is, is, uh, is um, not being heard, not being received, you've got the word. God said, no, it's the sacrifices of the wicked that I don't like, but your prayers, I love them. I love them. I love your voice. I love your heart. Never think That you are stumbling over your words and God is saying, bring me somebody who can, you know, put more scriptures in their praying and, uh, you know, make better quotes. No, the Lord looks and listens to the heart. He loves us. And it's just wonderful to be in his presence this morning and know that. Well, you know the Lord has designed us to be givers. We are born to give, and this fifth part in this series this morning is going to be about passion. What we have done in this, in this uh, message is we begin to talk about how that uh, the Lord, in making us givers and putting his gifts within us, as he refines those gifts and as we pursue them, we become leaders. It's God's will that the true leaders in this world are people who, who are anointed of God, giving the gift that God's put in their life. And as you do, you, you become the Lord's light, His salt in the earth or His leader. Proverbs 18:16 says, "A person's gift makes room for him and leads him before important people. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, 6 and 7, Paul said to Timothy, "I remind you, fan into flame, the spiritual gift God gave you. For God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So this series is about the real you, hidden in your gifts, around those gifts the Lord formed your soul. And as you begin to realize that God has put gifts in your life, and that your life is intended to be a gift that is being given to the world, when Jesus comes into your life, and He peels back that, uh, that corrupting influence of sin he releases that gift within you. you. We begin to become aware of the gifting in our life and, and as we do we discover the real us and that's where we truly are happy as being who God has really made us to be. Uh, the real you begins to emerge as you start pursuing God's gifts in your life and the Bible says then life will make room for you That's where your prosperity, that's where the open doors will appear before the gift of God in your life. And that's why Jesus said, it's more blessed to be a giver than to be a receiver. When you're giving, you are having your most intimate relationship with Jesus. Your entire walk with the Lord is literally built around you pursuing the gift of God in your life. So we began um, about a week or two ago to begin to introduce the idea of leadership and and gifting. God's idea of leadership, as I said before, is when someone develops the gift that God's put in them and then uses it to serve and inspire others for his glory. Now, the gift that God has put in you is an impartation. So the gift is an impartation. But you becoming a leader... That's not an impartation. That's a result. That's a result of a work and of an effort. And so you were born to lead, but you must become a leader. So the enemy's fighting your becoming. And of course he uses you. You are your worst critic, and you're also your greatest prophet. Nobody will speak faith to you better than you can speak to yourself. When you see the purpose, and we shared about purpose Last week we shared how that uh, there are certain elements that make you a leader. And the first is knowing your purpose. This one this week we're going to talk about is passion. True leaders and people who are becoming leaders have passion. It takes passion to be a leader. And so as the the enemy tries to keep you and prevent you from pursuing your gift and becoming the leader God's called you to be, He tries everything to rob your passion, to take passion away from you. Don't let him have your passion. Put your hand over your heart and say, I'm not going to let the devil rob my passion. Amen. You know, he cannot steal the gift from your life, but he can rob you of passion. And if you're robbed of passion, you'll never have the fuel, like gasoline you put in your car, to run that gift. And so you need that passion. Passion is the accelerant to a smoldering heart. It's the X factor that explains exceptionalism in an average person. All of us have read books or seen movies or know of testimonies of people that were just average people who arose to become exceptional people. And the trip from average or even below average to exceptional is accomplished, not by gifting alone, but specifically by passion. Passion is that X factor. It is the thing that takes you from ordinary to extraordinary. Nothing great in life has ever been done without passion, think about it. Everything that's great, enduring, that's ever happened in life, has happened through passion. Love for something, when you love something that you're doing, loving that that gift that's put within you, when you love something, and that love for something has been refined into a passion, that produces the best works in life. It's been said that enthusiasm and persistence makes an average person superior and lethargy and indifference makes a superior person average. Think about it. The greatest music, art, designs, constructions, all began with gifts but were accomplished and completed through passion. Gifts alone have never accomplished the building, the concluding, of anything great. It's always been passion in people with their gifts that have brought works to fruition. One of life's most important secrets is that hard work beats talent. Talent that doesn't work hard. Talent's a wonderful thing, but if talent does not have passion, like the tortoise and the hare, the hard work of the tortoise will always beat the talented rabbit across that finish line. That's passion. The rabbit had ability. But that tur- that turtle, that, that slow creature, had determination, had passion. And of course, he won. And that's a, that's a great secret in life. It's a secret only because every generation just forgets that. And we worship people with talent, but we forget that God's put gifts in us that are waiting for us to stir passion in our own hearts, the passion that you have for the gift that God's put within you will awaken its glory, and you too will do great things in life. Can you say amen? amen. Remember that our text that we opened up with in First Timothy said, Fan into flames. So you see that accelerant. You see the fuel being fanned into flames. Fan into flames, Paul writes, the spiritual gift that God gave you. So God putting a gift in you does not automatically put you into ministry. That gift does not function on its own. Paul wrote to Timothy, who was anointed of God, had been given a gift and put in a position for that gift to operate. But Paul writes to him and says, Timothy, remember the gift that was in you. Stir it up. Fan it into flames, because it's not going to work if you don't become passionate about what God has put in you. So if pursuing your gift is what's going to be the engine that carries you to life's fulfillment, then passion must definitely become your food that you eat, your fuel that your soul feeds off of. Life's unhappy and depressed people aren't people without a gift, but people without passion, because everybody has gifts. They're people without motivation. Those are the people who fall into unhappiness, and you know, When you lose passion, when you lose motivation, there's no amount of money, fame, power, or approval and acceptance from other people that can make up that difference. It creates an emptiness inside of us. Only we can feed ourselves. And the thing that our soul feeds off of is passion for the gift that God has put in our life. Statistics tell us that 5,000 people a day commit suicide in this world. That's one person committing suicide every 40 seconds of every minute of every hour of every day in this world. Far surpassing deaths by conflict and by catastrophe As harsh as life can be, as debilitating, as discouraging, as depressing circumstances around you can be, trouble, lack of acceptance, shortage of income, physical ailments, all of the terrible things that life can throw at us, as harsh as it can be at times, the reality is that living on empty, inside is still the hardest burden for the human soul that was designed to be a giver. When you lose your passion to be a giver, you lose your reason for living. No passion, no giving. The gift is there, but it's not going to operate. If, if you knew that stirring passion for the Lord in your life, and that's where it starts from, would awaken and stir up that gift in you, many of you would discover the answer to the thing that you may be asking yourself right now. What is the gift that God has put in my life? What are those gifts? Oftentimes, the answer begins with stirring passion. It is through passion for the Lord and passion for the gift, the fact that there is a gift in your life that will reveal that gift and make it to rise up. That's why when people will come to an altar and have a time, either through fasting and prayer or just connecting or some kind of a breakthrough takes place, and they get a hold of a little spark of passion, and they begin to fan those flames, those flames rise up. That is when you begin to discern exactly what the gift is in your life. You don't have to wait until some prophet comes along and tells you, yea, thus saith the Lord. You are a gifted painter. You are a great teacher. Or any of those things. You yourself will know. God will show you. The gift will introduce itself to you. In fact, the gift has been talking to you all your life. You haven't always understood it. But it has tried to rise up even before you were saved. And in the deafness and in the confusion of a sin-corrupted soul, you might not have understood. But the urgings of that gift have always been there. Moving in your life, sending out desires, if you will. When you come to Jesus Christ and that corrupting influence of sin is broken, you begin to see things clearly. You let Jesus be the shepherd of your life. He starts showing you who you are and revealing. When you become passionate, a passionate follower of Jesus, you love Him more than your own life. There cannot remain anything hidden that God has put in you. No good thing that God's put in you can remain hidden. It will emerge, and it will come to life. Listen. Listen to Isaiah as God through the prophet Isaiah appeals to hungering souls. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good and delight. There's your passion. Delight yourself in my rich food. You see, the Lord loves the hungry heart, and he's reaching out to hearts that hunger. You know, hungry hearts make a lot of mistakes. Hungry hearts get committed to foolish things. Hungry hearts go tearing off in the wrong direction. Hungry hearts fall into oppression and bondage and and pull the covers over their head and close the shade and seal themselves away from the world. There's all kinds of reactions that malnourished and hungry hearts have. But God knows the hunger in that heart is for you to discover who you are. Why do I exist? That heart is looking not just for connection with the Father, Not just to be one with Jesus, but in becoming one with him, he then introduces you to who you are and what you're supposed to be doing. So the Lord says, come everyone who thirsts. You see, the hungry or the thirsty soul is thirsting specifically for passion. That is what you are truly thirsting for. Let me say that again, because if you're a note taker, you need to write that one down. When your heart is hungry and thirsty, you are thirsting for passion. The human soul was designed to be lifted up with passion. But all of the emotional attributes that accompany passion, desire, desire, focused desire, happiness, joy, even through pain. You see, no soul can move forward in life without passion. And so the Lord says, are you thirsty? You are thirsting for passion. So come and don't bother bringing your money. You don't need to come to me and say, look what I can do, or look what I can bring and give to you. Just come and receive freely. And he asks the question, why are you spending your money on that which does not not satisfy? You see, all of the distractions in life that you eat but aren't filled, those occupy the dispassionate void in your heart. The area in your heart that ought to be filled with passion for the gift of God within you. But it's empty because you're not thinking about the gift of God within you. You don't even think that you have a gift from God. And you might think, not be thinking that you are a gift. People who don't think of themselves as a gift that God wants to give to the world, they don't see themselves as being in possession of a stewardship of a heavenly gift with a purpose their life will always be filled with daily activity and always trying to find happy activities. And that's what God was saying when he said, why are you filling yourself with what is not satisfying? You're truly not filling yourself with those things because they can't fill you. You can only be filled by giving. It is more blessed to be a giver than to be a receiver. Somebody say praise the Lord. You see, your soul must have passion in order for your gifting to be fulfilled. Even Jesus relied on keeping passion in his soul. In John chapter four, he's at the uh, at the well of Samaria, talking with the woman at the well. Most of us are familiar with that story, and he's had this exchange with her, and she's all excited because. He's, he's revealed them, himself to her as the Messiah, so she's run back into the town. And at some time around noon, and Jesus hasn't eaten, and meanwhile his disciples come back and they've gone into the nearby village and they've gotten food for him. And they bring the food to him, and they said, here, Lord, we've got some stuff for you to eat. And they offer the food to him, and, and listen, listen to what takes place. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Then he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples were saying to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food, everyone say "my my food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's telling his disciples that being passionate about doing the Father's will is what feeds him the energy to be the gift given to the world and to finish his assignment. So if even our Lord, if even the Son of God said, I must eat passion, so that I can finish my assignments. That's what feeds me. That's my food. How much more you and I need to be filled with passion in order to fulfill our assignments and to use the gift that God has put within us. Amen. Now let's talk in a practical way for a few minutes about passion. Passion requires primary focus not just focus but primary focus in other words it needs to be the primary thing you need to be passionate about what is primary in your life and in psalm 27 verse 4 david writes one thing have i desired of the lord and that will i seek after And that is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his holy temple. Listen to what he's saying. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to have communion with the Lord. I want to dwell in his house. I can't stay at church all the time. But even when I leave, I want to stay in his house. Do you you hear what David is saying? I, I want to stay in unbroken communion with the Lord. That's David's prayer. So notice that David doesn't say, Lord, my prayer is that you and I have unbroken communion. you think you can work that out for me? And some people think that, you know, when they get saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's what that is. You, you, you now have unbroken faith. And then they get so disappointed when all of a sudden their heart gets cold, the vision gets dim, their, you know the clarity that they had when things were so crystal clear now are a little confused that their friends have been talking to them and questions are rising. And so they're, they're, the natural tendency is to think, God, how come you're not? How come you're not keeping me in fellowship with you? You can see where we're going with this. David says, "One thing I have desired." Now, that's primary focus. I'm sure David wanted a lot of things. He, he wanted Bathsheba. We know that. And 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 then he wanted to be forgiven for wanting Bathsheba. And, you know, David was a man, uh, he was a worldly man, you know. He, he, uh, he wanted victories over his enemy. Now, David was not uh, some kind of a benign, uh, um, uninteresting monk who had had no interest in life. I think David had a great lust for life. Um, but he says here one thing. You see, David distilled down his desire I can do without everything, but I can't do without this. And sometimes it has to get to that point where you literally, that's what fasting and prayer is, by the way, it's pushing everything else aside. You ever get to the point where the stuff you own starts owning you? We used to say years ago, it's okay to have stuff just as long as stuff doesn't have you. And uh, Christians will often say in justifying themselves, I do it, we all do it, you know the Lord's blessed me with these things, and as long as the things don't have me. But the reality is, is that it creeps up on you. And the reality is, the truth is, is that those things most definitely do have you. You're there. You know, they're occupying your time. They're occupying the real estate in your mind and in your heart. And basically, you've gone from being a leader and a spearhead to being a manager, a keeper of stuff, and. Uh, so David gets to this point where he says, one thing have I desired. There's the passion talking. I don't believe David was saying, one thing I'm interested in. I'm really interested in, in, in having the presence of God. He said, I'm passionate. I'm passionate about it. How do you know he was passionate? He said, because that I'm going to seek after. A lot of people want God in their life, but they don't want to put the, what it, what's necessary to seek him. To have him. So David does not make the mistake of thinking, this kind of intimate relationship that I want with the Lord is something that God's just going to give to me. And if I don't have it, it's obviously not God's will for me to have it. And there have been many people, particularly those that might be thinking about making Jesus Lord of their life, who've um, prayed a few times in their life and they've said, well, I, you know, I prayed and I felt a little something but it didn't last and I said, well, Lord, if you want me to pursue you, you know, put that desire. And they, they think like that. They think that, um, you know, if it must not be God's will, you know, for, for me to have that kind of relationship with that my friend has or my, my family member or other people that I know. But the reality is is that all good things in life must be pursued. The Lord said, Those that seek me early will find me. If you really want me, pursue me. In fact, if you read the Gospels and you see how Jesus handled himself socially, he would walk into a situation, he would make statements that were radical. I mean, absolutely, he would turn the whole church upside down. He'd be in the marketplace. He'd say things that, by the time he was done talking, some people wanted to grab him, put him on their shoulders, and run off and make him king, while the other people ran off and were conspiring how to kill him. There was no middle ground. Jesus would talk and he got radical reactions from people because of the things that he said. So Jesus would go out in public, he'd say these things, and they would thrill and upset people, and then he would just leave it there. And he'd walk off, he'd go somewhere else. And there were all those people wanting explanation. Hey, wait a minute, what did you mean by that? Can you imagine Jesus in a press conference today? <laughs> With what the press is like today, have you ever seen a bigger bunch of babies? A bigger bunch of ignorant nitwits in your life? I can't believe it. I you know, I don't know what has happened to the whole business of journalism in our country, but I think all of them flunked out at the third grade level and just absolutely never matured into adulthood. They just are so immature, freaking out over things. They don't get the questions answered just the right way. And I think, are, are you so unintelligent you can't figure out what's being said? That question gets answered once and they keep asking it a thousand times. They want to get it another way. So I could just picture Jesus being interviewed today. He would be more hated than Donald Trump. I guarantee you. I guarantee you, more people would hate him than, than hate Donald Trump. Just because of the way Jesus, boom, he'd say something. If you want to know more, come follow me. You see, that's where the problem is. People want you to put the food in their mouth, then they want you to grab your jaw. <laughs> chew it for them. Stroke their throat, swallow it. Maybe just hook you up to an IV. David said, one thing have I desired from the Lord, and I'm going to seek after it. You have to stir yourself up to have passion. Passion doesn't fall out of heaven. Passion lives within you. It's called the Holy Spirit. And stirring that gift up stirs that passion up. Can you say amen? amen? So, passion arises from focused desire. When you take the time to to focus your desire, it produces passion and it produces faith, by the way. You fan into flames your beliefs into faith. It refines what you believe into actual active faith. The difference between beliefs and faith really is passion. Many of us believe certain promises that the Bible makes. But we have a hard time getting from what we believe to an actual state of faith where we're saying, Father, your word says that with your stripes I was healed. I believe that and I receive it. Now, I'm not talking about being a parrot that runs back and forth like a little parakeet on your thing and and pecks at the mirror and rings the bell going, by stripes I was healed. By stripes, I was healed like a parakeet. Back and forth on the thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not being a parakeet and saying those things. I'll give you a little testimony. Um, Early in our pastoral experience, Kathy and I had a young couple. Well, everybody in our church was young. Well, there was a young couple in our church, and she was pregnant with her first child, and she was pretty far along in the pregnancy and had a difficult pregnancy and there was hemorrhaging that had gone from from just spotting to actual hemorrhaging she had been to the doctor and the doctor sent her home basically for the babe for the miscarriage to take place i don't know why they didn't just you know induce or do whatever they do but they sent her home they said go to bed let's give it a few days and I got called as a pastor um, and they said, would you come and, and pray ha- over sister so-and-so? And um, on the way over there, I grabbed one of our elders. I said, come on, let's go over. And we're going to anoint and pray over her, anoint her with oil. And, you know, we believe the word of God. We believe First Peter 2.24 with the stripes were healed. There was no doubt in our mind that healing was a provision of the covenant. So we're on our way over there, and uh, I believed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe gifts of healings and working of miracles, you know, are ours. So I'm, I'm praying and, and stirring that up, but as I'm praying, I've got a vision rising up inside of me of the baby dead in the womb. And I could not get that vision out of my head. I thought, Lord, are you showing me, you know? Are you giving me a, a prophetic insight that this child is is lost? And, and as I entered their apartment, the husband takes me back into the bedroom where she was in bed. When I saw her, all I could see was the dead baby. So now I've got to be the pastor and pray. And it is the most miserable thing in the world. father... And that's when you pull out the King James stuff. Thou knowest. (laughs) Thou art great. Thou fillest the heavens. And, you know, you start start preaching in your prayer because you're trying desperately to get a hold of something. But obviously inside myself, there was no passion. It was a flat, like mirrored lake. There was no storm of faith rising up. So, you know, I, I prayed and couldn't get out of there fast enough. A couple of days later, it was a Sunday service, and she came to church. And I remember when the service was over, she was sitting on the front row. And I was standing up front talking to somebody, and I happened to look out of the corner of my eye, and a bunch of the ladies had gathered around her. And I could see that they, they were extending their hands to pray over her. And then, then I could see them turn around and look at me, and one of them started to come over. I thought, oh, no. They're praying over her. And now they're coming over to get the pastor to pray over her. And I I couldn't get out of there. I was stuck. I wasn't near any exit doors. But, but God. Hallelujah. When I turned back, because I turned my back on her and turned my back on the lady that was making her way to me, I just quickly prayed in my heart, Oh, Father, I stir up the gift that you have put within me. I stir it up, Father God. I thank you. And, you know, when you pray like that, you can pray a lot faster than you can form the words. When you're praying in your heart, just like, like lightning. Bang. You can say all kinds of things in just a flash in a moment. So, obviously, a connection was made, and it was like, a flash flood went off inside my spirit. Vroom! And I was just filled. Jesus said, Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. She tapped my shoulder. I turned around. By the time I turned around, I couldn't wait to get to that mother and lay hands on her because I knew that I was dripping with the healing, the deliverance, the raising from the dead, whatever it was. I didn't know what what the need was. I just knew the answer was jumping out of me. Passion rose up, but I stirred myself up for that passion to come. And I was willing to be uncomfortable. I was willing to be miserable in order for that passion to come. And it came. So, People will often say, look, if it's God's will, but I'm trying to to connect with you this morning. I'm trying to tell you that it's not just all God's will. God's will is involved. Yes, he is the one that releases that anointing. He is the one that put the gift there. But he wants you to reach out to him. The woman with the issue of blood pressed her way through the crowd. Notice that Jesus didn't stop under her window and say, Honey, I love you. Just don't, I'm going to come up there. You don't have to come down here. He let her come all the way through the crowd, grab the hem of his garment. All throughout the Bible, people cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And um, so passion is something that you and I must stir up within ourselves. Amen? Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Don't leave us hanging. Oh, you want to know how that... You mean you had not figured it out? Well, that, that baby grew up and had babies of her own. I mean, it was... Yeah, she had a healthy, bouncing baby girl. Yeah, it was great. Praise the Lord. Sorry about that. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, listen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by... And I've added a little phrase from the Amplified Bible. We do this by looking away from all that distracts and keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiated and is perfecting your faith. So Jesus wants to perfect what he initiated in you. He's put a gift in you. He's installed faith in you. He says to each one has been given a measure of faith. That measure of faith, I guarantee you, that measure, you're never going to use it up in this lifetime. There's more faith installed in you by the Holy Spirit than you will ever use in a hundred lifetimes. But you need to let Jesus be the perfecter of your faith. How do you do that? Looking away from all that distracts. Focus on that gift that God's put in you. Focus on Jesus. Remember I told you that the relationship you have with Jesus surrounds your relationship with the gift. It's the gift that connects you to him. It's the stewardship. You say, well, I don't know if, uh, you know, the Lord would save me even if I didn't have a gift. But you do have a gift. You wouldn't be alive if you didn't have a gift. God put gifts within you, and they are there. And so what he has put in you is the life that he wants you to live. It's the you that you're supposed to be being. I don't know if that was correct English, but I think you got the idea. Let me share one testimony, then I'm going to just close with a couple suggestions about how to reactivate, how to rejuvenate and stir up faith. How many of you are familiar with the story of Queen Esther in the book of Esther in the Old Testament? Don't you just love that story? Really great story. Read it again, familiarize yourself with it. Now, Queen Esther had a great gift. Now, um, her gift, you might not think of it as very spiritual, but it It sure put her at one of the most significant crossroads in history. Her gift was her beauty. Girl was absolute drop-dead knockout. And she was beautiful. And her gift, being her beauty, put her in the position of saving Israel from annihilation when a plot had been hatched. I can't go into it all, but if you're familiar with the story, you probably remember the plot. The plot to have all of the Jews in the empire put to death. And she had become one of the king's wives. He had many wives. She was so beautiful. He saw her one day and said, I need to have you as one of my wives. And she became one of his wives. However, um, she had her own little apartment that she lived in, and he had his place, and all the wives had their own place, and there was a law that basically said, you cannot go in to the king's chamber and approach him unless you have been asked for. And if you go in without being asked for, you will be executed. Now that's a... I know some men that would love to have that law That could be a really convenient law for some guys. But I don't know that any of you guys could manage five wives or whatever. So the point is, she was in a position where she could have interceded for Israel. But she had that threat hanging over her life. Her gift had brought her that far. Her gift had positioned her to be influential. Through her gift, she was there as far as that gift would take her, but it wasn't enough. What she needed now to actually rise up and fulfill God's destiny for her was passion. Passion that would give her the courage to risk her life, and she did risk her life, and she went before the king not having been invited, and he heard her. And the net result of her going into him and talking with him was that Israel was saved, and those that had plotted against Israel were taken and revealed and were punished. The scripture talks about that and just kind of consolidates it. Her uncle, Mordecai, comes to uh, Esther, and says, you're the only one. You're the only Jew who's close to the king. You've got to go talk to him to uh, save them from being annihilated in his kingdom. And she's basically saying, there's this law, I, I can't go talk to him. Mordecai confronts her. And he says, you have to do this. He said, don't think that if the Jews are wiped out just because you're married to him, you'll escape because you and your, your household will be wiped out too and God will bring deliverance through some other means. And he says to her in Esther 4 and 14, Besides, how do you know whether or not you've actually come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, your gift, your beauty has positioned you for this very moment. Now it's time to have Passion. And have courage. And the Bible says that she responded to him and said, Go gather together all the Jews that are present in the city of Shushan. And fast for me. Neither eat or drink for three days, day and night. And I also and my handmaidens, we will fast for three days and three nights. And then I will, after fasting and prayer, I will go before the king which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. You could hear passion starting to talk. That's where the courage came to take that gift. And the Bible says after three days of fasting, she cleaned herself up. She threw on her royal apparel. She made that gift look as prominent as it could possibly look AND SHE WALKED THROUGH THOSE DOORS, AND MAN, THAT GIFT WAS TALKING TO THE KING. AND HE SAID, HONEY, WHAT IS IT THAT YOU WANT? AND I'M NOT GOING TO GO INTO THE STORY, IT'S A WONDERFUL STORY, READ IT. BUT ESTHER'S GIFT WAS USED TO ITS VERY HIGHEST POTENTIAL ONCE PASSION WAS MIXED WITH THE POSITION THAT THAT GIFT PUT HER IN. LET ME SHARE WITH YOU VERY QUICKLY Six ways that you can revitalize your spiritual passion. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, you know, um, I do have passion, but I need to revitalize. I need to rebuild my passion. Here are six little things that you can do in your life. Number one, remember. Remember that Jesus and his gospel are radical to the world. Read the Gospels. Jesus, as he moved from scene to scene in the Gospels, was always passionate, saying things that stirred up the people around him. So as a Christian, number two, remember that you're called to follow Jesus and be passionate like he was passionate. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 17, it says... After Jesus had made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple, his disciples remembered the scripture, passion for God's house will consume me. So Jesus was consumed with passion and it made him radical in his generation. You too, number two, as a Christian, remember you're called to follow Jesus. You can't follow him if you're not willing to be passionate and let him make you radical. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 26, If any man serve me, let him follow me. It's good to go to church. It's better to follow Jesus. Number three, remember that you and I are going to give an account for the stewardship of our gift. We are going to stand before God And answer, did I bother stirring enough passion for the gift of God in my life that I got out and risked losing it, dealing with the marketplace of the human race and investing it and gaining? Remember what happened to the steward that buried that gift in the backyard? He had no passion for it whatsoever. You and I will give an account. And Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Number four, remember to regularly fast, pray, and examine yourself. When you and I are fasting and praying, do what 2 Corinthians thirteen five says. Examine yourself, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. If you'll do these first four things, it will help to put you in touch with passion in your life. Uncover that passion that's been covered over. Number five, this is a real simple one, but I I was going to leave it out of the list, but I think it's very important. I know a number of you probably already are doing it. If you're not, please get into the habit of reading soul-stirring accounts of sacrificial people. It's great to read self-help books, but you need the testimonies of men and women who have done great things with the gift of God in their life because I guarantee you're going to read stories of people that made great sacrifices, stirred passion, and went and average people became above average, and became superior. Brings me to the final and sixth thing that I believe God has given to stir passion, and that is pray in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.4 says, He who speaks in tongues edifies and improves himself. The gift of praying in tongues is the one and only gift whose purpose is to build up and impassion the believer. That gift has been given to you for you to use at will, unlike any of the other gifts. We can desire them. We seek God to move upon us. But once you have received that devotional gift of praying in tongues, I'm not talking about Standing up in church and giving a message in tongues, which is a prophetic utterance, which you should never do unless the, uh, there's a real prophetic word being spoken and you're giving a prophetic utterance in tongues and then they'll, it will be made evident because an interpretation will come. I'm talking about the common use, the... I would say average, but I think it's the most important of all the gifts of the Spirit, praying in tongues in your devotional life. It is absolutely critical. It will build you up. And let me tell you something. The devil fights tongues bitterly and has for 2,000 years. No sooner had that gift shown up in the day of Pentecost than the devil started mass-producing wet blankets to drive it out of the church And let me tell you exactly why the devil bitterly fights the gift of praying in other tongues. He does not want Christians to become leaders with their gifts stirred up by holy passion. Remember the scripture says, he that prays in unknown tongue builds up, energizes, improves himself or herself. That is the purpose of that gift. Listen on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell, the purpose of the Holy Spirit falling was not to deliver tongues to the church. Speaking in tongues was not the purpose of Pentecost, but rather the purpose of Pentecost was a gifted church springing to its feet and going out and literally uprooting the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8, 9 says Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. That word manifest is particularly important because that's why Jesus told them wait in the upper room for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit so that you could go out and manifest so that I can manifest my power through you. Tongues was given so that you could keep your sword sharp so that you can keep passion in your soul, so that you can stay in touch. In fact, tongues is like a gateway gift. They talk about drugs. Is marijuana a gateway drug to the, you know? Tongues is a gateway drug. It's the gateway gift to the other gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you begin praying in tongues, and you say, well, you know, I've wanted the Lord to give me that. Good. Just keep saying, Lord, just fill me with the Holy Spirit and give me that gift. And if whatever's hindering and he will; he'll pour it out on you. Take it and run; don't look back. Amen. Hallelujah. I remember when my 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 wife and I were filled with the Holy Spirit. I can't; don't have time to tell the story. But the Holy Ghost fell in that meeting we were at, and she spoke in tongues and was filled with the Holy. I just heard about it 15 minutes before they prayed for me. I never heard about it before in my life. So. Her and my younger sister were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues. No one laid hands on them. My sister Mary, She'd never heard of it before. So here she's filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I didn't. I had like about seven people praying over me, and all I did was shake, you know. So I was determined. I'm not going to be robbed. I need to have this gift. So I went home that night, piled myself up in bed, and I'm laying there thinking, you know what? I'm just going to do what they what they were doing and I'm laying in the darkness. I just they raised their hands, so I'm laying there. I got my hands up like antenna. And I said, Lord, I pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I just decided, you know, I'm just going to take the plunge. And I'm just going to start saying, Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And just see if tongues will come. And I just kind of stepped over the edge and let myself fall forward. Bam! It was like pulling a cork out of a bottle. It just started flowing. I thought, oh, that's real. That is for real. So, at any anyway, rate, let me say this about praying in tongues. The devil fights it in two ways. He fights tongues by minimizing, trivializing, doctrinalizing, and saying, it's not for today, it's passed away. And I've heard all of those teachings, and none of them really hold water scripturally, biblically. They just don't work. Um, And i got to ask myself, why? Why would we want those gifts to disappear from the church when the very purpose was to make him known the world is just as needy today as it was 2,000 years ago? The other way he fights tongues is by people focusing on it. You know, when the Holy Spirit moved in that great outpouring, that great revival in the late 60s through the 70s and 80s, the Jesus movement, the charismatic renewal, swept over the entire world, and hundreds of thousands of people were brought into the kingdom. Tremendous works were launched. That was a Holy Spirit revival, and people were being filled with the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues and all kinds of stuff going on. The whole purpose of that movement was the glorifying of Jesus, lifting up of Jesus. God did not send tongues to the church so that we could worship praying in tongues, so that it's what we gather about. Some of you may go out to a restaurant after the service today, but your your purpose in eating is not to eat. Your purpose in eating is to fuel yourself so that you've got energy to live your life. And so, on the other end of this thing, we have people who are passionate about passion. And passion in and of itself is not the end game. It's your gift. And using that gift that's the end game. Coming to church and running around and stirring up passion is not our focus. But we need that passion to be stirred up. Can you say Amen? amen. And so oftentimes you'll 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 hear about these things where in these churches or movements, people just get focused on the passion. And then you've got gold dust falling in the rooms and people spending the night on the graves of of great men and women of God soaking their spirit up and all kinds of crazy things going on because they worship the passion rather than the gift giver and the purpose for that gift being given. Down the middle of the road is where you want to walk. That's where you want to be is you want your purpose and your gift lined up and you want to say, Lord, I need passion stirred up in my life. One thing have I desired, I'm going to get after it and seek it Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. All right, if you would just uh, close your Bible. I want you to stand with me.